Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Russia If You're Listening episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast, an associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. It's hard to think about the topic of election security in the U.S. without bringing up Russia. From the DNC hack in 2016 to the Mueller investigation and the seemingly bizarre relationship between former President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin, Russia has remained a potent influence in American politics. But Russia's impact on elections and democracy have not only been felt in the US, but around the world, as Putin has flexed his muscle and intervened to disrupt elections in various ways in Ukraine, France, Germany, and throughout former Soviet states. At the same time, he appears to be growing increasingly authoritarian at home, most recently, for example, by first allegedly poisoning and then jailing opposition leader Alexei Navalny. To discuss Russia and Vladimir Putin's influence on global democracy, my guest today is my colleague from the University of Washington, Scott Radnitz. Scott is the Herbert J. Ellison Associate Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies at the Jackson School of International Studies. His research is focused primarily on the post-Soviet region and topics including protests, authoritarianism, informal networks and identity. In addition to numerous published papers in a first book, Weapons of the Wealthy, Predatory Regimes and Elite Protests in Central Asia, Scott has a new book that has just been published this week, Revealing Schemes, the Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Region. Scott is also an associate editor of the journal Communist and Post-Communist Studies, a faculty member at UW Center for an Informed Public, and a member of the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia. I'm pleased to have Professor Scott Radnitz joining me today from Seattle. Hi, Scott. Hello. So Scott, I wanna talk about your new book and congrats on that. But first I thought you could help us lay some groundwork with respect to Russia more generally and, and the state of democracy in Russia and why Russia has been so involved in American democracy and election security in recent years. So Scott, what does Vladimir Putin want? Well, uh, that's the question on everybody's minds. He probably wants what many leaders do, which is to stay in power as long as he would like to and uh, to be respected on the world stage. In particular, in, in Russia's case, there's been a sense in the Kremlin, in the Putin era, that Russia has not gotten the respect it deserves and has been punching below its weight internationally. So I think Putin really would like Russia to be respected as a great power in the world. So why then is, is it that Russian influence in the US is a way to, to gain that respect? Um, and I guess I, I guess I would ask that question in reverse chronological order. So if we start with the 2020 election, do we know of, or is there evidence there, that there was Russian influence as there was in 2016? Do we, do we have a sense of that yet? Yeah, so following the election, uh, the narrative initially was that Russia didn't try to meddle in this election. Russia kept out of it for, for some reason uh, about which people speculated at the time. But since then, in March, the intelligence community released a report documenting that, in fact, Russia did use some of the same tactics in 2020 that it did in 2016. For example, by um, spreading uh, fake news or amplifying false information from American social media users. Uh, Russia was also involved in potential influence operations regarding uh, Ukraine and um, got involved in the storyline about Hunter Biden. So there is evidence that Russia did use some of the same tactics that it did in 2016, 
but I think it didn't get as much press because one, it might not have been uh, as effective because social media companies are more prepared and the media didn't really bite this time. Um, but also because the uh, amount of disinformation, lies and conspiracy theories coming from within the US, especially from Trump himself, simply dominated the storyline about what was happening and, and made whatever Russia did seem kind of insignificant. So Trump was out Putining Putin. Well, this is kind of, um, you know, one of the, the lessons of the past few years, which is that as much as we may have foreign adversaries who seek to undermine our democracy, we as Americans are plenty capable of undermining our own democracy. And the success of countries who, who seek to meddle in, in other countries' politics is only as effective as the, the system allows it to be. And because we're such a divided country and because the conspiracist in, in chief was out there spreading this information himself, um, he kind of did Russia's job for it. Scott, I, one question I've been asking actually a lot of guests or a version of this question over the lifetime of this podcast is, is something like the following, which is that I can see the argument that in 2016, a lot of Americans, particularly perhaps older Americans, and particularly on Facebook as opposed to Twitter, were honestly consuming misinformation, disinformation that was coming out of Russian troll farms or whatever about Hillary Clinton and the DNC and stuff like that. Um, and and there, there's a part of me that believes that people were honestly reading that information and not knowing that it was fake. But after the Mueller investigation, after volume one, and after everything in the news since 2016, my sense in 2020 is people knew. I mean, at that point, you kind of know it's fake and you maybe consume it because you still think it's funny or you don't care that it's fake. Like you still get some sort of like, I don't know, dopamine hit by sharing it on Facebook. Or you're just, I, I mean, for lack of a better phrasing, you're just too dumb. Like there's no like education that's gonna happen. But my sense is, is that there wasn't like this constituency of people who were honestly being influenced by that misinformation in 2020 as there was in 2016, but rather that people, that there had been sort of a new equilibrium met. But I don't, I'm not basing that on any fact. I'm just sort of like positing that as a hypothesis. Yeah, so this is actually a critical question to raise when we talk about misinformation which is how effective is it? Is it actually persuading anybody? So we know that people share misinformation and fake news oftentimes without even reading the article itself, but because it seems like something that would be popular within their social networks. We also know that people tend to believe things they want to believe and that rational arguments aren't likely to deter them from believing what they want to believe for social and cultural reasons. And there's been some research um, by political scientists and economists about how little fake news, whether from Russia or from the US, has actually changed anybody's minds. There's a selection effect, which is that people who are reading um, right-wing nutty websites or RT, which is the, the Russian international station, are already inclined to vote for who they want to, and in many cases it's Trump, and so they're consuming information that they already agree with, and, then, and fake news is not persuading a lot of people who otherwise would have voted for Biden to instead vote for Trump. And there are nutty uh, 
websites on the left or nutty positions on the left. You know, a lot of a lot of the anti-vaxxer movement is on the left, isn't it? Sure, sure. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Yes. Uh, so there are, there are conspiracy <laughs> theories. There's uh, there are lots of misinformed people on, on different sides of the political spectrum. But we do have to recognize that these days in the U.S., conspiracy theories, false beliefs, um, strategic use of misinformation is mostly proliferating on the right. So did, in 2020, did we see anything that was the equivalent of what we, we didn't know it at the time, but we subsequently learned from the Mueller report and, and uh, other reporting, the sort of equivalent of the sharing of polling data from the Trump campaign with you know, members of or suspected members of Russian intelligence um, in the lead up to the 2020 election to sort of target specific aspects of social media or constituencies. Do we do we know that yet? Or is there any evidence of that? So I'll preface my answer by saying we only know what we know and that this kind of information would mostly come from the U.S. government deciding to release something like this publicly. I don't have any good friends in the intelligence agencies that are tipping me off about what they're finding. But what we think we know from what the US government has said is that um, there was an effort in 2019 and 2020 by Russian affiliated assets in Ukraine to work through people associated with the Trump campaign, namely Rudy Giuliani, to try to spread probably false, but at least damaging information about Hunter Biden by way of getting to Joe. So it's more indirect in this case. It's Russia acting through people sympathetic to Russia in Ukraine who, um, who were also implicated in um, the scandal that led to Trump's first impeachment and then getting into Trump's inner circle through Giuliani, One America News and Americans who had an interest in amplifying this narrative about Hunter Biden. So, so there, that is um, what you could, could call it an influence operation. It didn't get quite as much press this time though, because I think the American media was a little bit smarter, a little bit more circumspect, um, and the public was probably more, more skeptical and, and was immediately attuned to the fact that this might not appear to be what it is on the surface. Was it true, Scott? I'm, I mean, it's like trying to remember the forensics on all this is actually kind of hard at this point, and I'm getting old. But it was true that the New York Post was the only news outlet that ran the original story about the laptop. Is that correct? But a lot of other news sources refused. Is it something like that? So, yeah, so I, I'm not an expert on this particular instance, but yes. So uh, the New York Post put this article out about Hunter Biden, something having to do with a hard drive, something having to do with... Um, Pictures of people in various states of undress. I'm not going to get into the details, but they tried to sell this to the mainstream media. And this is one of the tactics for dirty tricksters on the right, is that to really damage their political opponents, it's not enough to keep it in the right-wing conspiratorial ecosphere of Alex Jones and, and his minions, but they want to get it into the mainstream media, which they did in 2016 very successfully, right? That email hack was worked so efficiently because it was picked up by all the major mainstream um, papers and, and TV stations. In 2020, the mainstream media didn't bite. So it remained confined to the New York Post and the right-wing fringes 
and became a talking point among people who follow those, that media, but it didn't make it out into their re respectable parts of the media. So going to, so I want to ask you specifically about Ukraine, because one of the things you said made me realize something that's very interesting. So if I recall correctly, the Trump call with Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was July of 2018. It was the summer of 2018. We didn't know about the call exactly at the time, but the whistleblower complaint, then the, the media picked up on the story, I believe, in September. That was September of 2018. Okay. Right. Then then it's the um, then it is or is it the or is it summer 2019? You know, so much history has happened in the last two years. It's easy to lose track of these dates, um, but I think the dates aren't important. We can go ahead with the with the. No, no, it's, tw it's 29. Sorry, it's the summer of 2019 that this happened. And then the Trump hearings were, were right before COVID started. Right. So that was that was the end of 2019. Sorry, I'm, I'm a year late. OK, so it's July 2019. The call happens. Then then um, then uh, uh, then it's found out. Then there's the investigation. There's the impeachment. But after the even after the impeachment, Giuliani and other members of the campaign are still in Ukraine. Right. Or they're still working with Ukrainians to try to uncover some evidence. Right. It didn't yes. stop. Yes. <clears throat> so. Giuliani kept up his work as Trump's personal lawyer to advance Trump's political interest. And that involved working through Giuliani's previous contacts in Ukraine to try to replicate their amazing success from 2016 by making this election not about Trump and his inability to deal with the pandemic, but about Joe and Hunter and China and corruption and a bunch of other stuff. But if the public had already kind of cottoned on because of the impeachment investigation, did they honestly think this would work or they didn't know? Or I guess I'm asking you about Giuliani's state of mind, which is maybe a foolish question <laughs> to ask. <laughs> yes, so, so, so there are certain topics for which um, a, a psychologist um, would be <laughs> better qualified to deal with. And this, you know, when we or get- pros the, Or a prosecutor. <laughs> right, yes. Um, so, you know, when we get into in questions like people's state of mind and people's true interests and true beliefs, I think we can infer people's interests because we're political scientists and, and that's what we're good at doing. But in terms of their actual beliefs, this is a real challenge. And it comes up when, when you study conspiracy theories, when you study pol pol the political uses of conspiracy theories, people often ask, um, you know, does Trump really believe what he says? Does Putin really believe it when he says that uh, the Americans are sponsoring revolutions to overthrow uh, the Putin regime. And the answer to that question is always, we simply don't know. And an addendum to that is it doesn't necessarily matter because we're studying effects in real life and we're studying outcomes. And so whether a person genuinely believes in what they're doing is kind of besides the point. Well, so then let me ask you this from Putin's perspective, and again, not necessarily his psychology, but his interest, which is, you know, he knows he knows what he knows about what he did in 2016. He then sees Mueller report. He sees the Ukraine impeachment scandal. What is his interest in continuing to play along with this, if, if he did continue to play along? I don't know if there's evidence or not. And did he sort of, it, it seems to me like at a certain point, he realized Biden was likely to win, and he seemed to have backed off a little bit. But in 2019 or 2020, do we have any idea about what his thinking was or what his, his overt actions were? 
Yeah, so we can do a little bit better in, in trying to assess um, motivations based on, on interests. But I think we still have only a partial view of re what Russia actually did. And I don't know if we know for sure that Russia necessarily ever backed off trying to help Trump and, and weaken Biden. So I think we can assume that in general, the Kremlin preferred Trump over Biden, although Trump was not an unalloyed success by any means, because the amount of sanctions on Russia increased under Trump rather than decreased. And even though Trump spoke very favorably about Russia, the Trump administration, which is the US government, actually maintained a policy of being pretty tough on Russia. So we have to separate Trump the person and the government. However, that, that said, I, it's, there's still an argument that the Kremlin would prefer Trump being in power someone like Biden, not necessarily because it helps Russia, but because it harms the US. So this gets to the broader question of what Putin wants, right? And why it seems like Russia is out to stick it to America. Russia today, and for the past um, couple decades, is, is an aggrieved and resentful power that for, for reasons that I mentioned before, feels like it's um, not getting the respect it deserves and seems to perceive the world in zero sum terms in that anything that weakens the US and the West and NATO is by definition good for Russia. And if you view the world in those terms, a lot of Russia's actions kind of make sense. Like why should Russia want Americans to distrust their government more and, and Americans to hate each other? What's in it for them? Well, nothing directly, except for the fact that it may perceive that a weaker America, a more divided America, is less able to assert itself in the world, to push back against what Russia is doing geopolitically, therefore giving Russia a freer hand. Or maybe it's something, again, not to get too deep into psychology, but maybe there's just kind of a, a feeling of affirmation, a feeling of, of schadenfreude when you see your adversary, a country you perceive as your adversary, even your enemy, get hurt and, and fall down, you know, there might be kind of a psychological boost in, in feeling that you're kind of better off because your adversary is on his, on his back feet. Well, Scott, this is a really interesting point because I want to I wanna have you answer a question that I frequently get from students, which is, is it enough, do you think it's enough for Russia that it is schadenfreude or even just sort of egg on your face laughing at the Americans or is, is part of Putin's motivation or Russia's motivation also actually explicitly ideological and trying to stoke populism and nationalism among the US population and actually trying to sort of replicate a Putin style? You know, I mean, it's funny because he's a former communist official, but I think in a lot of ways he seems very right wing today, sort of like it's actually to specifically get this kind of nationalism populism going as well, because that will somehow benefit Russia. Yeah, so that's a great question. So people who study Russia more than I do are skeptical that Russia really has something you could call an ideology today. Putin is a tactician. Putin has been flexible over the years in the kinds of rhetoric that he uses, the kinds of ideas that he puts forward. But the common thread throughout all of that is that Russia wants to project power geopolitically 
and uses various tools in order to do so. So when we look at uh, Russia's actions uh, involving meddling in, in elections or meddling in politics more broadly, I think we need to situate that in how Russia sees how it can most effectively use the tools available as now a middle-income country that's struggling economically, that's stagnating politically, how it can try to punch above its weight. And it can do so in an asymmetrical way, most effectively. It can't match the military power of the West, of NATO. But what, it, what can it do? It can try to throw its weight around through things that we talked about, like propaganda, also using its leverage in post-Soviet and post-communist countries by working with sympathetic politicians, by buying corrupt politicians, by financing parties and groups in democracies that are illiberal, mostly right-wing populist parties who are sympathetic to Russia because Russia is a disruptor and they also want to disrupt their own societies. And occasionally Russia seeks to assassinate people abroad who it considers disloyal. So Russia's working with a set of tools that's not very costly, but that allow it to advance what it perceives as its interest outside of its borders. And it's done so pretty effectively. Um, it hasn't broken up NATO. It hasn't ended the sanctions against it, but it's definitely gotten inside our heads, right? And the fact mm -hmm. that we're having this conversation now kind of shows that, well, if, if, that, if part of the aim was to destabilize our sense of order and to distrust our government and to you know, think that Russia is powerful, well, by that measure, it's succeeded. Yeah, and it, it, it's not just the US, you know, it's the, he's been poking shoulders and eyes in France, Italy, Germany, obviously the UK. And it seems like in a weird way, I think what you just said, it, it does seem like that. Like it's like the, the sort of getting in people's head creates um, in an asymmetric way, then causes that, that group of people to magnify the boogeyman and the power of the boogeyman. Um, and, you know, if it's like you can swing an election by donating to this campaign or you can convince people to to withdraw from the EU or you can, you know, help this coalition get elected or this candidate get elected. Just the the psych the the chilling effect that that has psychologically on an entire country is pretty large. You haven't really done that much. Right. So so I, again, I would raise the question of whether Russia is achieving tangible successes through this. So it gets into our heads and that's great. Maybe. But what, is Russia, what does Russia really get out of it? Russia still has not destroyed NATO. He hasn't broken up the EU. Uh, lots of countries now have banded together to continue um, to levy sanctions against important Russian companies and elites that are close to the Kremlin. So it's worth asking whether Russia is really succeeding out of this or is just giving the impression to itself, to its citizens, to other citizens that it's, it's truly powerful. One example of this is also what's going on in Ukraine. Russia has a lot more influence over Ukraine than it does probably um, compared to anywhere else and definitely more than it, it influence than it has over Western Europe. What has Russia accomplished in Ukraine? Well, it's uh, financing a, a civil war that keeps the country unstable and, and divided, but it's also united the rest of Ukraine uh, around 
a sense of, of um, defiant independence from Russia. And with the exception of a, a pretty small number of people, I think Ukrainians uh, feel more strongly attached to Ukraine and support Ukraine's autonomy than they did before Russia started this war in 2014. So Russia's good at achieving short-term tactical successes and maybe, again, the semblance of success, but it's, it's arguable whether it's achieved tangible um, geopolitical successes. So what, what's the, how would you characterize the relationship between the Biden administration and Putin or Russia? I mean, it seems, I mean, obviously Biden has had a lot on his agenda domestically and the kind of important international stuff that's happened, I, I don't think has really been focused on Russia that much. Um, obviously Obama was supposed to have the original Russia reset, reset, that didn't work. Biden was vice president at that time. The Trump, you know, the sanctions went up. Is what is your thinking, if you were to speak, I, I know you can't speak for the Biden administration, but again, thinking about their interests, like what do you think their thinking is with Putin and how to handle Russia? Is it just going to be more of the same or are they going to try some radical departure? I think Biden just wants Russia to go away. Biden has lots and lots of things on his plate. The last thing he wants is to have to get involved in Eastern European politics and proxy wars and, you know, potential nuclear threats. It doesn't want to deal with this stuff. So I think their policy is to try to deal with what they consider a nuisance, tamp down fires before they get out of control, conciliate Russia to the extent possible, while also conciliating the Russia hawks in DC. And there are still a lot of them who would prefer a much tougher policy toward Russia. What about carrots though? Like what, what, I mean, I, I guess we could say if you do this, we'll reduce the sanctions, but are there any like real carrots that you can imagine being dangled in front of Putin that he says yes to that are mutually beneficial to both sides and that get around some of this bad behavior? So there are a few things that the US and, and Russia do have in common, right? Where there's an uh, overlapping interest. One of those is arms control. Um, both countries um, agreed to extend uh, the New START Treaty uh, which which maintains uh, the verification mechanisms and and holds both sides to the um, the reduction of, of missiles that they agreed to before. So I think both countries would prefer that um, there were there could, they continue talks and then maybe would pursue another round of arms control. Both countries I think um, have an interest in dealing with Iran and getting the U.S. Um, back to the bargaining table and reaching an agreement like they did under the Obama administration. And then, and there are a lot of issues on which the US and Russia fundamentally disagree. And again, as, as Russia is trying to project its geopolitical influence, in a lot of these cases, the US is not directly affected. And the Biden administration's main concern is that Russia doesn't do anything that would fundamentally destabilize, I think, its primary interest in Europe, which again is keeping NATO together, um, avoiding outbreaks of war in Ukraine and, and um, in other post-Soviet states. Um, and in general, keeping tensions at a, at a simmering low level. Working with Russia where there are common interests, which is by the way, what the Obama administration ultimately did. Um, speaking out when 
Russia acts in ways that the US considers unacceptable and otherwise just trying to keep the relationship manageable and keep tensions from spiraling out of control. Is one source of things that could get, uh, that could become a headache for Biden and European allies, things that just happen within Russia. So I'm wondering like what your take is on growing authoritarianism within Russia itself and stuff like the Alexei Navalny incident and recent protest. I mean, I'm not saying this would happen, but what if just as an intellectual exercise, something were to happen on the scale of like the Arab Spring within Russia? Um, and there's just massive protest if Navalny were to die or something like that. And, you know, a lot of people take to the streets. Obviously, Putin's going to have to respond. Is that going to be a flashpoint for the EU and the Biden team and having to deal with it, even if the, they deal with it the way Obama dealt with a lot of the Arab Spring, which was to say nothing and let it play itself out? Or do you, do you think it would require a more robust response? Yes. So uh, I'm. I'm gonna answer this question carefully because um, I just wrote a book about conspiracy theories, much of which are, are Russian, Russian conspiracy theories about America. So when I say, when I talk about the prospect of future protests in Russia that might threaten the Putin regime, I'm gonna be very uh, careful in doing so because I um, am just a lowly academic and have no um, influence over the real world. If something like that were to happen, Clear, clearly, that would be um, a, a major uh, important event that the Biden administration would have to deal with. I imagine that the appropriate response would be extreme caution so as not to endanger any protesters by implying that they're receiving support from the US. And this actually was, I think, the, the approach in the... Uh, protests that happened when uh, Navalny uh, came back to Russia and then from Germany after he recovered from the poisoning and then he was immediately arrested. There were massive protests across Russia. Lots of protesters were arrested. And uh, they, I think smart policymakers understand that there isn't much that we can do to help the cause of democracy by say speaking out forcefully or implying, you know, giving, sending signals that we're, we're sticking our nose into business that we, we shouldn't. Uh, the U.S. has learned also from, from the Arab Spring and the um, protests in, in Iran in 2009 that the best thing the U.S. can do in a world where authoritarian leaders perceive that the U.S. is stoking revolutions is to lie low and do as little as possible. Well, I wanted to talk about your new book, uh, which is titled Revealing Schemes, The Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Union, uh, sorry, Post-Soviet Region. I think it's out this week, so congrats on that. What is the book about, and what's, if you were to summarize the argument of the book, how would you summarize it? Yeah, thanks. So um, this is the first time, first or second time I'm talking about, about the book um, publicly, because it's, uh, it's brand new, so, uh, so I'll give it a shot. Well, so what I try to do with this book is to reframe the study of conspiracy theories. There has been some research now on why people believe conspiracy theories. And this is kind of the main question that um, psychologists were interested in, political scientists got interested in this question under Obama and then more so under Trump. And it's an important question about what causes people to believe in conspiracy theories because it affects things like um, their political behavior, uh, voting, um, it's conspiracy theories 
can lead to violence in some cases, uh, right? We're seeing them with QAnon. But fewer scholars had studied the question of why elites, why elected officials use conspiracy theories in their in their rhetoric. So that was the, the motivation for this book. Um, and I situate this in um, in not just one country, but uh, 12 countries. So the whole post-Soviet region minus the Baltic states. So 12 countries remain. Um, and I explicitly made this a comparative project because when there have been accounts of conspiracy theories in one country, there tends to be um, a lot of factors that make particular countries, especially conspiratorial, stereotypically, not just Russia, places like Turkey, maybe Egypt, maybe um, uh, Iran have this reputation for being especially conspiratorial. But in any single case, it's easy to ascribe that kind of discourse to that country's particular history, to a set of traumas that that, that country suffered, to the fact that the country was invaded a lot, so that makes people paranoid. So that's why this country is so conspiratorial. But what's missing is a comparative element few have actually asked, well, how conspiratorial is this country really? Like, how how odd is it that um, the Kremlin tends to promote conspiracy theories? Uh, is that a normal thing or is that an unusual thing? So by situating Russia alongside um, other countries in the region, I one thing I wanted to do was just show how unusual or typical Russia is. So one of, um, so that's the, that's, the, my intention. So one of my arguments is that it's not the dictatorships that produce the most conspiracy theories, because um, it's also this narrative that conspiracy theories go together with dictatorship, because dictators seek to uh, overwhelm and deceive and distract and manipulate their subjects in order to maintain control over them, and dictators have those means. But what I found actually is it's the more competitive regimes where there's actual institutionalist political competition where you see more conspiracy theories being used in politics. And I argue that that's because conspiracy kind of emerges naturally from the cut and thrust of political competition, especially where politics tends to be kind of vicious and, and unconstrained. It's kind of natural that politicians would use conspiracy theories as a way to bring down their adversaries uh, and boost their own power. So that's one of my one of my major findings. But Scott, this is a very controversial point because if I take the Washington Post at its masthead tagline, democracy dies in darkness. And the, I mean, one of the alternative hypotheses I think you're sort of like saying is that the idea is that in a democracy or a more competitive system, I mean, maybe not a perfect democracy, but even where there's more competition, that sort of requires there to be a free media. So if there's conspiracies out there, yeah, they may persist because there's competition, but the idea is that the media plays the oversight role of saying, well, this, this story is incorrect. And that's kind of a foundational reason why we think conspiracies shouldn't really persist in a democracy. And you're saying that that's wrong or that needs to be amended. I think conspiracy theories are completely compatible <clears throat> with political competition. In the post-Soviet region, it's the countries where there is an independent media and where there's a financial incentive for 
media organizations to sell copy that they're more likely to cover interesting and sensational allegations, which in turn gives politicians incentives to use the kind of rhetoric that they think will help them in the course of, of their political fights. And so, so, so what cases are these? Give us, give us some of these cases. So, countries. so uh, I'm going to leave Russia aside for a minute because Russia's kind of a, a special case. Uh, Ukraine, Georgia, and Kyrgyzstan are all what we might call hybrid regimes. They're not fully authoritarian. They're not fully democratic. But politics is truly competitive in these countries. Incumbents are not guaranteed victory. Um, they have to enter the political fray, enter the rough and tumble of politics. And in these, in these states, this kind of rhetoric flourishes. And the media amplifies what politicians say. Um, the media watchdog role is there, but it's not necessarily powerful enough or strong enough to provide the fact-checking role that we hope it does in, in more established democracies. What's interesting too, Scott, is that I think people forget or they don't know, in the United States, the same was true early on in the Republic. There was just, it was sort of like, I mean, <clears throat> we look back at Thomas Paine, right? We look at common sense and we're like, oh yeah, well, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously this was an important founding document in, in sort of the United States thinking about um, freedom and the rest of it. But the British considered it propaganda, right? Like they considered it conspiracy and lies. If you think about the Federalist Papers not even being published under the names of the authors, as a way to try to influence early on. And there was a very vibrant and a lot of ways free press, but it wasn't it wasn't the way we think of the press now in terms of fact checking, right? It was more about giving platforms, it, democratizing the ability of political elites to have a platform to make their position known, but not necessarily that there was a, a journalist on the other end of that saying, well, no, Thomas Paine is wrong or no, the British are, are, are lying, right? Like, so in a weird way, you need that early nascent moment for the, these platforms to grow and for people to have the voice before you even get to the fact-checking part of it and, and the way we typically think of media as playing a watchdog or oversight role. That, so that's a very important point. We do take for granted a system in which we have these independent, mostly trusted, neutral institutions whose job is to produce knowledge or to check What's what's being said uh, in order to in order to make facts more widely available and to diminish um, the uh, the ability of, of of false or misleading information to spread. Um, we we live in a particular historical moment where we're now actually we're, we're seeing this norm kind of erode because it's coming under attack. But this kind this this role of civil society and the media in particular to perform this role in democracy is very limited in time and space and in other countries where these set of institutions never developed uh then politics and the kinds of rhetoric that is is um is more proliferates more and is more effective um is simply different can you give us some examples of some of the, the conspiracies that you look at in these countries in the book? Sure. Uh, so, so there are, um, you know, so there aren't that 
many unique narratives. Um, in, in one chapter, I kind of go through it. I create a typology of the kinds of claims that are made and the kinds of conspiratorial actions that are posited um, and the logics or the pseudo logics behind them. Um, so, you know, what one major narrative that's emerged from Russia over most of the last 20 years is that Russia is surrounded by enemies who seek to weaken it. And uh, this actually was, was prominent under Yeltsin when Russia was actually a democracy, although a flawed one, when Yeltsin's opponents, mostly affiliated with the Communist Party, claimed that Yeltsin was uh, a tool of the IMF, um, was weak, was a pawn that was being used by Russia's enemies to plunder Russia, steal its resources, break up the country. And various versions of this narrative have persisted all, all throughout into the Putin era. And a corollary of that is that within Russia, there are disloyal people, um, fifth columns, who work in league with Russia's enemies in order to undermine Russia. And this is the case when, when, um, a liberal op when the liberal opposition uh, was, was suppressed and sidelined, uh, right, partly under the rationale that they were, they were serving the interests of, of the West and they were inherently against Russia's interest. Um, the, uh, the arrest of the performers of, of Pussy Riot, um, a, a punk band that, that um, supposedly desecrated a, a Russian Orthodox church. Again, the claim that they're advancing the interest and um, alien values of, of a foreign power to undermine Russia. These are, from, at least in Russia, these are sort of the, the mainstays that have persisted throughout several decades. So there's like a little bit of an element of truth or some empirical thing that can be observed that's consistent with that story, even if it's not true, but it's consistent with that story. And then that continues to provide fodder to fuel the conspiracy. Yeah, so one point I make in the book is that conspiracy theories are not crazy. They're oftentimes grounded in real politics, in people's own experiences, and they're a natural and normal part of political rhetoric because they're based on the reality people find themselves in. Now, a separate part of the book, so most, most of the book is a, this top-down element, I collected a bunch of conspiracy theories promoted by politicians and, and tried to find patterns. And the last two chapters of the book are um, analysis of, a, of surveys and, and focus groups that I did in two post-Soviet countries to see how people receive the conspiracy theories that they hear, um, what they believe, what they don't believe, and how they articulate their ideas about power in general. And it kind of makes sense if you're a politician to use conspiratorial rhetoric when the citizens themselves are cynical and believe that the government is corrupt, which it often is, politicians are offered themselves, which they often are, um, the state abuses its citizens with impunity, which it often does. So against this background, a lot of claims that politicians make about other politicians might seem perfectly reasonable. Were these two countries, Ukraine and Georgia? These were Georgia and Kazakhstan. Okay. Tell us a little bit about, I'm always interested for people that go to really difficult places to do research. Just tell us about doing research in those environments, like literally being there and doing this research, but also just generally how easy or hard it is to research on these topics in the post-Soviet world. 
so for this book, the bulk of uh, the data that I, I analyzed came from collecting conspiracy claims in Russian language newspapers. So uh, this, this was done from, from the, the comfort of my um, home office and computer and an army of research assistants that I hired to sit in front of their computers and collect these conspiracy theories. Uh, so the majority of, of the work for this came from um, not, having, not having to go to the, the region um, and in, engage. For the survey and focus group, I worked with lo a local uh, firm. I did, go to, I did go there, of course, um, and work with these firms in order to develop the survey, and I observed the focus groups. I wrote the script and everything. So uh, I, I confess that as a mid-career mid um, scholar with a family, it's not as easy for me to go traipsing around difficult countries doing things. Okay, food. Scott, but you're being natural. You spent a lot of time in the region, at least, you know, at, at a younger age. You but did. I did, so, but I did before, yes. Yeah, so, so you can, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, this is something we train for. Um, you know, I, I learned the languages. I, I learned Russian and um, a bit of Uzbek before I went to Central Asia. And I spent uh, about two and a half years in Central Asia um, as a grad student. And um, yeah, it's difficult, but, the world is, is complicated and in order to figure out how stuff really works, you, you have to go there, you have to see what things look like on the ground, you have to talk to real people and, and see how they perceive the world. And while, while I was there um, in the early, you know, early and mid 2000s to do this research for my dissertation, it was really along the way though, just living there, experiencing the world that I kind of get a deep kind of intuitive sense of what kinds of questions are worth asking. And it was in one, you know, a random encounter in field work, I probably in Kyrgyzstan when I was talking to a taxi driver, because, you know, that's where you get the best information. And this taxi driver casually mentioned that, um, oh, Gorbachev worked for the CIA. <laughs> because how else, how else would you explain what he did? why he destroyed the Soviet Union. And so, you know, just random comments like that. And, uh, but that one stuck in my head. And that combined with uh, maybe a previous interest in conspiracy theories from being, being an American and observing the kinds of, of discourses on the right in the 90s after the, after this, the Cold War. Um, you know, we have plenty of indigenous conspiracy theories here, kind of planted the seed for this project and led me to want to explore this uh, more seriously. So what did you learn in the focus groups or the surveys? Can you kind of give us top line conclusions in terms of the people you talked to? Yeah, so um, I did a few different things in the survey. I think one, one, of the, one of the top line takeaways is that people are not dupes. People do not necessarily believe everything they're told even though people are receptive to conspiracy theories, they're also skeptical of their politicians who seek to promote conspiracy theories because they don't trust those politicians. So this is kind of this paradox in which conspiracy theories may be effective because people are inclined to believe them, some of them, but they're also suspicious of the motives of a politician who will promote conspiracy theories. So, there's this conundrum here that I argue makes conspiracy theories 
not as effective as you might expect as a form of political rhetoric. That is, elites don't necessarily get the value out of it that they seek to when they use it. And the focus groups are revealing because it allowed me to flesh out the way that people just talk and think about power. Um, people are cynical in, in that right, people often don't trust the government, but it's not only that. People uh, kind of assume, right, there's a sense that everybody's out for their, their own interests. Um, people are liable to screw you over. People are in power simply because they want to loot the treasury. Uh, and, and these beliefs are based on, on people's real experiences. So they're not necessarily wrong. And uh, this informs the way that people view the world. Is and, it oh, sorry. sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to ask if it causes people to, to then just feel disaffected, demotivated, and lacking in efficacy, so they just like kind of say no to politics, or does this actually have the reverse effect that causes mobilization in politics and it encourages people to participate? Yeah, so one of the uh, findings from my survey was that people who are more prone to believe in conspiracy theories participate in politics less than people who believe uh. in fewer conspiracy theories, but are more socially active. That is, they have higher levels of social capital. They're more likely to get together with people in their community, more likely to have political discussions with other individuals, but they're less likely to vote uh, and they're less likely to participate in explicitly political activities. Why which is kind that? Of, which, kind of make, which kind of makes sense because people are alienated, alienated from the political system, but I think people might, might find common language with other citizens who are equally disaffected because they can get together and talk about how disaffected they are. So Scott, what you're saying is that human beings are complicated, that the way in which they think about the social and political world is also complicated, and that the way they present and then behave in the social and political world is complicated and nuanced. Well, that's really profound, James. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you put it in those terms. Well, that's why that's why people like you write books, right? Because it actually there's no kind of easy take. It actually is complicated. I mean, student, you know, students, the media, the 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 public kind of want easy takeaway points, but the social world is complicated. It's complicated to study. It's complicated to explain because it actually is complicated. Human beings are complicated. Well, this is why we set aside an hour for this podcast um, rather than <laughs> rather than putting my book into a 280 word character tweet. Although I do plan to do that too. Okay. Well, Scott, let me add, let me, I like to end with an easy question to answer, but a, a big picture question, which is if you were to sum up kind of what do you think the contribution of uh, Russia specifically, or just the post-Soviet sphere is in thinking about democracy in the 21st century? Again, this is an easy question. What would you sum up a bit, a takeaway point on that? What does the post-Soviet world tell us about the trajectory of democracy in the 21st century? In a lot of ways, <clears throat> Putin has led the way as a model of a modern authoritarian. A lot of the tactics that he's used in repressing the opposition, um, deterring people from activism, weakening independent media have been borrowed by other authoritarians around the world. And Political scientists are, are now taking seriously the idea of authoritarian norms. And Russia plays a pretty large role in the ecosystem of 
authoritarian norm creators and norm disseminators. Uh, at the same time, Russia still has a lot of active and um, angry people who are not afraid to go out into the streets and demand changes of various kinds. This was evident, again, recently um, uh, when, when Navalny was arrested. And among young people, there's more interest in getting involved in at least communal and civic activities, if not necessarily expressly political ones. So there's this reservoir of, of discontent. And it's, it's partly because um, you know, Russia is not delivering the goods like it used to. The Russian um, right, people's standard of living rose in the early Putin years and it's kind of stagnated since then. So civil society is still there in Russia, but until things change at the top, it won't really have a chance to, to assert itself and, and, and make meaningful change. So, so Russia is not North Korea. Russians have a lot of freedom, they have freedom of movement, they can travel. Um, the quality of life in Russia, especially major cities, is, is much, much better than it used to be. And there are, you know, cool cafes and expensive lattes that, that people can buy. Um, and there's, you know, a thriving culture uh, that's, that's, not, that's not necessarily political. So um, Russia is kind of a bellwether in that sense. Um, if there's major change in Russia, it, it could imply that there could be major changes elsewhere. And I also tend to believe pendulum swing, right? There, are, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea, right? Um, so you know, there was a democratic wave. Now we're in an authoritarian wave. Uh, but you know, when there's generational change, people don't share the values of their parents. And if if your parents' generation craves stability, but you grew up in a system that was mostly stable, you will probably crave some kind of change. And so I don't think we're seeing this yet, but that the potential for that is, is still there and uh, we shouldn't give up hope. Great, well, I think that's a great place to end. Scott Radness, thanks a lot for joining me today and everyone should go read your book. Thank you, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.